Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, Focus Compounding, sitting next to Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? Uh, it is going very well, Andrew. How is it going with it's you? going great. We hope it's going great for everybody else. Hey, if you're listening on YouTube, hit that subscribe button. Thumbs this video up. And if you're listening on the podcast, I think we've learned, we've grown, we've learned that the best thing to do to hack the algorithm, we're trying to hack all these algorithms, is to actually subscribe to the podcast. So make sure you hit that subscribe button. Tell your coworkers, tell your friends, tell your parents. Hit that subscribe button on the podcast side of things. It helps spread the word, and we are very thankful for that. Big news right now. People are not going to like this, <laughs> but we're giving you 30 days notice. Uh, we are a business here. Uh, starting July 1st, there will be a um, only available for listen will be the last 20 episodes of Focus Compounding. The rest of it will be behind a premium wall, which we don't know exactly how much it'll be. It'll probably be, we've talked about it, like eight bucks to yep. get um, But it'll have other stuff and things like that. Exactly. But the, the thing is, if you listen to the show, you will always have the 20 most recent. Yes. However, if you don't listen to those 20 <laughs> or you don't have them in your possession, yes. um, then like you go away for a month, you will just miss them and you won't have them anymore. We are tuning, we're tuning it up to five episodes a week as well. Yes. So we're yeah. just bringing you guys so, a ton of content. Yeah. So if you listen regularly, there, nothing's really going to change. But if you've been in the habit of like going through the uh, back catalog or something, you do things like that, then things may change for you. But the 20 most recent are always going to be available for you for free. Um, so if you want to do anything about that, of trying to make sure that you have other episodes or you want to go into the back catalog now or whatever you want to do, download all of them. Yeah. That, that's your morning now. Yeah. Download all of them. We're going to start doing that on July 1st. So we have about a month before that's going to, um, become a thing, but, uh, be on the lookout for that. We're going to talk a little bit more about that as time goes on. And we're up to over 200 plus podcasts. Now we're bringing you five a week now. Yeah. Bring, 300 is a problem anyway for podcasts. Yes. Yeah. Yes. But so, I mean, we're starting to have to pay a lot for bandwidth <laughs> and stuff. So we're just trying to, uh, think of other ways to supplement that and, um, be on the lookout for that. So in today's podcast, we are going to be talking about surviving your slump. Um, and how to stay sane when prices are high and value investing isn't working. Okay. And that's very relevant to everything that's been going on right now. I, it seems like the market at this point that we're recording is down only 6%. Mm -hmm. I think value investing really hasn't rebounded as much. No. It's been much more of these growthier type of companies. So I'm just, you know, it, it really is a good question because of everything going on. A lot of people have been saying, is value investing dead? I'm starting to right. see a lot of these, um, you know, what's wrong type of art, what's wrong mm -hmm. Warren type of sure. articles. I know the Financial Times did one on value investing and how value investing is dead. And I really just hate the difference between value investing and growth investing. Because to me, again, I've said no one buys, you know, a um, dollar thinking that they're going to lose money over time, mm -hmm. right? You're buying something because you think it's cheap. Just like if you go to buy a house, you're buying a house as an investment for $400,000 you probably think you're going to flip it for above $400,000. No one goes into an investment saying, I want to lose money. Right. And I understand the whole value versus growth argument comes from a perspective of, well, if you're paying 20 times or 25 times or 30 times, but at the same time, sometimes paying 20, 30, 40 times earnings can prove to be cheap, right? In it, different situations. It can sometimes, yeah. So maybe it's just like on a basket by basket type of thing. But I mean, how do you stay sane? How do you deal with it? It's a very relevant topic with everything going on right now. Mm -hmm. Berkshire hasn't been performing as well. Right. A lot of value managers haven't been performing as well. It seems like, you know, a lot of these larger companies are the ones that have rebounded back. Is right. there a new definition for value investing? Should we think about value investing differently? What are your thoughts on it? Um, 
So, yeah, I think that the size of the companies has had a factor. It's interesting. We look at um, stock charts sometimes, not from a technical analysis perspective, but just to because we check back in with the stock and say what's happened since we've looked at it. And uh, it's been very interesting with uh, the virus because the charts do not reflect much of a difference between stocks that should be affected by the virus and stocks that shouldn't outside of the very big ones that people know about. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of speculating going on in the really big stocks where say you have like a Zoom or something, or you have a Clorox or you have whatever, um, and Fang type stocks that are like work as stay from home stocks um, versus stocks that are very affected by that, restaurants, hotels, whatever. But in smaller stocks, in fact, we have some exposure to stocks that should be not affected at all or slightly benefit weirdly um, to stocks that should be very harmed <laughs> and their stock charts don't look any different. They just are among the stocks that aren't the best known stocks. And so they all dropped by a certain amount and they slowly kind of did whatever. Mm -hmm. afterwards but they didn't have this sharp rebound of like the the fang type stocks so why is that um it's kind of the same sort of thing unfortunately as what we saw in the late 1990s and stuff that i remember and it's a focusing in by people especially especially very speculative short-term oriented people on a very small number of stocks that tends to be the biggest thing when markets get very speculative they have a very small number of stocks that they pay attention to a small number of themes or whatever they're doing and uh large numbers of stocks get ignored by that and so there become very big differences between like the median result of an index or something and the mean result of the best stocks in that and some things like that and you know there and a lot of this may have to do with fed things and stuff like that right? well that's what i was gonna say so last i don't know if it was thursday or friday the fed chairman i think he was doing a interview at princeton and he mm -hmm. was talking about the fed's balance sheet and basically saying that there is an unlimited amount of things that they right. can do right of course. their balance sheet is never ending and Correct. they will do whatever it takes possible so it's almost like sometimes i wonder are they making their decisions based on the market or based on the economy right i know the answer this most likely the market i'm sure you know and the economy too but i mean there's just no i feel like i mean they're buying bond etfs i don't think they uh so this is a problem that they've had for a long time now. This is a problem they've had for 25 years or so. I don't think it has been the intent of the Fed to manipulate the market. I'm just basically asking, should everybody just go buy the S&P 500, quite honestly, and just ride the roller coaster and just know that this is a new version of bear markets because they just end so quickly, quote unquote, because of the Fed's willingness to basically do whatever? No. Um, the more that the Fed does now, the bigger the withdrawal from it will be. But how do you not know that they won't continue to do something else and something <laughs> else? It's like people are like, oh, I'm worried about we're going to have inflation or we'll have deflation. Will the Fed do something? They'll come up with some new thing to counteract that? Sure. They, they can do that. Of course. Yeah. Any credit expansion can keep going as far as they want it to go. Any printing of money can keep going as far as they want it to go um, till it doesn't. Um, the, the more likely thing in terms of like a credit expansion, which is the more meaningful thing, the, the, the Fed has a very limited ability to directly transmit any of the sorts of things it wants to accomplish. It goes through channels which can work, and that's why there's a lot of saying we have infinite whatever things and stuff. Yeah. Um, to the extent that other people are willing to go along with it. So like there's a lot of bond buying recently and stuff. So that's a big success for them. That's what they want is to have lots of issuances of bonds. I don't think they want the stock market to go up. I don't think that was the idea of what they wanted to accomplish. And I think that complicates it for them a lot. I think it'd be much better if the stock market had stayed down and not gone up. It makes it much harder for them to continue to do what they were doing. Um, 
I don't think they'll say that publicly, but that has been a problem. Uh, I think they know that they've accidentally caused the stock market and housing markets and things to go up more than they wanted when that was never their intention. Um, but they do want uh, companies to borrow lots of money during COVID. And they were successful in getting that done. Now, in the future, I don't know if they'll be as successful, but they may be. But eventually, you'll have something happen where just people aren't willing to extend money, even though money is widely available for risk-free type stuff, for risk type stuff. And so then there isn't a method to have the sort of things you want to accomplish in the market accomplished. Mm -hmm. And that's even true with some of the bankruptcies we saw. The Fed hasn't stopped JCPenney from closing stores. It probably won't stop Hertz from dumping some things. Um, There'll be deflation in commercial real estate, probably. There'll maybe deflation in car things, um, stuff like that. Used car markets affect new car markets. An excess of office space and excess of commercial space causes all sorts of problems. It hasn't necessarily brought down unemployment by a lot and stuff like that. They don't want the stock market to go up. They want the unemployment to go down. But they don't have very good control over unemployment. But do you feel like there's an added pressure, though, because of and we're not getting political. Jeff said he's not watching sports or, or watching TV and you're disbanding anything political. So we're not I, I avoid politics. politics. Yeah, I do yes. avoid politics. But in fact, we were just talking about something where I said I'm not doing a group that could turn into people talking about politics. Yes. So. But do you think that there's an added pressure to make the market go up because there is our current administration is so hell bent on the market continuing to rise? Um not exactly. Uh, I mean, this may be a different theory or whatever things, but I think actually what matters, the, the reason why things are a little different now are because you generally have two parties that are both in favor of the same thing. The, the biggest issue with political things is usually not the party that's in power, at least in the United States, because of the um, how narrow the balance of power usually is. Um, it, it usually is how wide the consensus is between the two parties to do something. So the fact that you have a part of the Democratic Party that's fine with printing unlimited amounts of money and a part of the Republican Party that's fine with like negative interest rates or supporting people who are in favor of those things or whatever, then means that there's a consensus that you're willing to do those things. Mm -hmm. Like after World War II, there's talk of a Keynesian consensus. Um, When you have people who are opposed to that, then you wouldn't. So if, for instance, you had Hillary Clinton as president, no, you could never do the stimulative things you're doing now because the Republican Party would have no reason to support those things and they want it uh but the democratic party has good reasons to support stimulus things because that's basically their policies already and so even though they are opposed to the president they basically support things that are similar to what he would want anyway because that's their policies. sure so if a republican adopts democratic policies or a democrat adopts traditional republican policies those things fly through if they're popular so what does the individual do then like how do you stay sane during this period because value investing has not bounced back no. there was maybe one or two days during the covid crash where you had an opportunity but there was just so much uncertainty then as well which i don't even know if you can call it an opportunity unless you were just going to close your eyes and do it well it may be an opportunity of course it may also be that 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 and now is the bad time that you shouldn't be buying these things. It's who knows, but you know what I'm saying? There was like one or two days where it's like, things were like stupid cheap, but we don't, but there was so right. much uncertainty of what's going to happen. Uh, I, some things were very cheap and we should have bought. I mentioned preferred stock, which we should have bought. And there's a reason for that. The reason why we should have bought the preferred stock is it was being sold for non-economic reasons. So we could talk about like why assets go up or down and stuff. They go up and down for their intrinsic value reasons. But then on top of that, they go up and down based on the buying power. 
really the the ability and the willingness of a group of buyers to buy something. So it depends on who those buyers are. And we've talked about that with beta. And sometimes that shifts. You were talking in the rundown about how there's more of a individual gambling type aspect to it. That's definitely true. Sure. Um, that has fairly minor shifts compared to other things. But um, it does affect some specific types of stocks that people day trade and stuff, which is a smaller group of stocks. Um, but it's really the buying power that they have. And so that includes things like margin loans and stuff. So the, in the depression, you, why did things get so bad in after 1929? Because people had bought on margin. Well, why are people dumping the preferred stock? They aren't individuals. The preferred stocks that they were dumping are because they're institutions that have corporate taxes that are different and stuff like that. And they were, they were liquidating. We've talked to some banks before and stuff. Some banks only have one or 2% of their balance sheet roll off each month in securities. Um, some have less than that, but some with a lot of securities have that. And so without either, um, getting loans paid back to them, which seems really unlikely in the middle of COVID that people would be prepaying loans faster than you expected. Um, you actually have to go out and sell some securities. So you have to sell treasury bills or you have to sell municipal bonds or you have to sell some banks and insurers definitely hold corporate bonds. And then you have to sell things like preferred stock. And so the reason people were dumping that stock was, uh, they weren't people. The same exact thing happened in the financial crisis. There were amazing opportunities in preferred stocks briefly when um, institutions, not institutions, not investing institutions really, but institutions in the sense of corporations, particularly financial services type stuff, were selling it. And they were selling it just because they needed liquidity. Uh, and there's some risk reasons and stuff for that. We saw, we talked about farmer max spreads, widening versus treasury, yeah. stuff like that. So some things get sold because they need to liquidate. And there was a few days where that was happening. I actually talked to you about a bank and stuff where there was information that happened where I realized that a bank was in trouble behaving as if it was in need of cash really. And the fed acted and stuff. And so that bank has, has been fine, but presumably it would not have been fine if they hadn't acted when they did, um, based on what sort of actions I saw them taking. Um, so those sorts of things mean that things like banks were dumping preferred stock and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So how do you stay sane though? Well, it doesn't matter any of these things. I mean, we're back at the same point we were before. You're getting many of the same prices offered to you. Why did you have to participate buying or selling or doing anything in the last, so far this year? Well, there's a lot of people that would say there were opportunities. We don't know. I mean, maybe too soon. Yes, it's way too soon. Okay. Yeah. So historically, if you... And you were talking about, not to cut you off, but whenever we talk about the virus, you always say, we'll know in a couple of weeks with all this stuff starting to reopen. Oh, yeah. How the curve is going to be. We we won't see things in Texas until uh, June. June is when we'll see it. So basically starting like now, for the next 30 days, we'll see the results of whatever happened with the first decisions that were made about opening back up. Now, some things have changed and they're potentially more positive, I have to be careful how I say this, positive for the stock market. It might mean more people will die, but positive for the stock market, which is that um, the consensus of compliance that's likely to happen has broken down in the United States, certainly. So it'd be very hard for any U.S. governors, administrations, parties, whatever, to ever have the kind of buy-in. They won't have it. So they'll never get the kind of universal buy-in they had during the first shutdown. So attempting to shut down things again, no matter how bad things get, would be tough because it would be fragmented and there'd be major protests and there'd be votes again. I mean, there's an election, so you risk losing an election or, or risk confuse you risk shifts some people who support you won't support you some people who wouldn't normally support you might support you but it becomes more difficult to predict those things sure so which is not true in some other countries you know like in the uk or something 
the party there has a very big majority and has no need to go back to uh, the ballot box for years. But in the U.S., you have regular elections, which, of course, affect people. If they start realizing that taking one position or another could cost them an election, they may adjust their thinking. But uh, certainly, I think that that's shifted so that economically and stuff, the likelihood of further shutdowns and things is very different from early on. So you said it's too soon, though, Mm -hmm. to judge, right? So we're basically we're down 6%. At one point, I mean, so when the markets rallied, like, what, 30% off the bottom? Right. But I think it did that in 1929 to 1932 and again in the 70s, although it's a little complicated by inflation. But you could get taken out on a stretcher if you, for those three years, especially money managers, for example. Maybe right. there's people listening that they, they have sort of that performance anxiety. Mm-hmm. of you know comparing yourself to the SP500 because you're not just investing your own money, but now you're investing other people's money who are benchmarking yourself to the SP500, maybe to other managers, maybe to their own investments. Um, you know, How do you sort of stay sane during that period? Or is it really just trying to, you know, business as usual, continue to look for you know, the companies that you find cheap? And- uh, you shouldn't be comparing yourself to the SP500 over five months or three months or any of those periods. Sure. It's way too short. Yeah. There's no, th- none of the, uh, Ben Graham, said and people aren't going to like this one but it's i agree 100 percent with what he said there he said you need to inquire into significant the only thing the investor needs to look at is significant price moves um and to think about whether those moves are correct or not he his view was a significant price move is greater than a 30 percent decline or a 50 percent increase in your stock moves of between 30 percent down and 50 percent up that is a move from 100 to 70 or 100 to 150, um, are to be expected, are normal noise that might have nothing to do with what's going on. Sort of the random and, walk theory, right? Yeah, and aren't worth worrying about. So his point wasn't even just that big moves of 30 to 50, 30% down, 50% up are, um, are, aren't you, that you shouldn't necessarily agree with them. His point was you shouldn't even worry about them, shouldn't even think that they mean anything unless they're that big. And I would agree with that. I would say there's very, I mean, the moves in the market that we've seen so far, I don't know if they mean as much as people think they mean. People always try to come up with stories for what they mean. Sure. But for instance, they're, they're shaping the narrative around the market. Right. But they can just mean credit conditions are better or were terrible. But I mean, my, my main reason why I would say that the market moved as badly as it did before and is better now is credit conditions were the worst uh, we're the second worst I've ever seen in my life. A- and um, we're pretty close to the worst. Um, in, uh, what are we now? Uh, were we talking about two months ago or so? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So 10 weeks ago or whatever it was. In um, When I was talking about that bank and stuff and things like that and that preferred stock. And so that was a matter of a few days, but it was certainly back to financial crisis levels at that moment. And now they are the best conditions I've ever seen for certain borrowers. Uh, very... Uh, you can raise the most money for the worst credits that I've ever seen mm-hmm. right now. So you went from the very worst uh, credit conditions to the best. In general, that would explain at least the market move we've had. In fact, it would explain an even much bigger one because it affects things like money flows into things and stuff. I've said this before, but it doesn't matter how bullish or bearish I am. If we have new money come into accounts, we buy stocks. And if money comes out of our accounts, then we sell stocks, obviously. That's how funds work and stuff. So if that's happening, we can be a net buyer of stocks when I sound very um, uh, bearish about things. Because if clients are bullish about it, then that's what happens. That you know, the, if, if money tries to go into the market, then it pushes things up. And if it tries to come out, then it pulls things down. Okay, but like, how do you shape your own 
So you were you just said that you know mm -hmm. credit is essentially like unlimited right now. Right. There's a lot of people lending money, and that sure. could help explain this rebound in the market. So how do you from there? Do you take off the bullish, um, the bearish, you know, glasses and put on the bullish glasses? Like, does that mean <laughs> does that shape the narrative that stocks will continue to go no, up? No, no. You just pay attention to intrinsic value as the most important thing. And secondly, if you have to have any other rule, I get a lot of questions like this. Okay. By the way, no, no, but this is, but that's very bad. Don't do that. That's the worst thing. A that lot could of people happen. will say and that's how everyone lost money in the twenties and the seventies. They did both the things you're talking about, and that's why Buffett may have talked about it a little bit in his in his talk there. A lot of people will be like, Andrew, is Jeff changed his opinion at all? Have that has you changed and i'm like you i don't say this out loud but i think the only reason you're asking me this is because the market is up you know 30 percent from the lows have i changed my opinion yeah the market's 30 percent less attractive than it was at the lows. <laughs> i mean but i mean like have you changed your opinion on companies. are you still bearish on the market I, you've the, publicly said that this is the most bearish you've ever been in your investing career yeah I, I don't like to use the term bearish but is it the worst is it the least amount of risk for the amount of uh, we're still looking for ideas so. is the least amount of return for the amount of risk you're taking yes yeah, definitely. Mainly because the return potential is so poor. It's incredibly poor. That's the main problem. It's not that I, I have some big concern that, you but know. Benchmark to what, though? To interest? Because interest rates are like nothing. Yes, that's true. But interest rates don't present risks. <laughs> so let me say hypothetically, I won't say what I think the market will return or whatever, but let's say hypothetically, I believe that the market was not going to return more than 5% a year for 3 to 15 years or however long you might commit to holding it. A five percent annual upside is so small an upside to take a risk that you might be taking. So what's different is, let's say I think that things are um, not much different in attractiveness than they were in the middle two thousands decade or the later nineteen nineties or the middle nineteen nineties or something. Let's say so, like about what they were twice before mm -hmm. in terms of um, past history, but that there are more risks, right? So the problem is that I have nothing wrong with taking so for instance financial crisis my expectations would have been better than 10 percent returns in early 2009 if you have better than 10 percent return expectation then you can easily take big risks um th that's fine that things could turn out worse than you think um because a lot of things can turn out worse than you think and you still get good returns mm -hmm. um here i'm thinking if things work out the way people hope they work out you'll get the kind of returns we've gotten in the market for if, by if you started in 2000, you know, the kind of returns we've had over the last 20 years or so, which are very modest and not big premiums over bonds and things because it was a high price then. Now, it's not as quite high a price as it was in 2000, though it is as high a price as it was before the financial crisis, certainly. Mm -hmm. So it's not that it's so risky, I would say, but it's just not having a good return. It's like saying, if I imagine a corporate bond that's on what you, that you could buy, and someone said, well, there's some risk of default here. Well, if it yields 10% a year and, and can't be called and stuff, and versus one that yields 5%, I have very different attitudes because the 10% might be a good bond that way. Like, is Carnival a risky bond that they bought? Maybe, but it yields 11%, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. but, so you're thinking about from like a risk-reward perspective. Yeah, there might have been a lot more um, reward potential in something like that. Yeah. Uh, now, of course, people will say with stocks, well, they could go up to anything mm -hmm. in the short term, which they can. And was it the right time to buy before? Yes. If you bought then and sold now, there's no doubt it was. The question is, what if you bought then and are holding for a while, what will happen and all that sort of thing? So hypothetically, let's play yeah. with your hypothetical. Mm -hmm. If stocks do 5% over the next 10 to 15 years, right. that should hypothetically mean it's a good time to be a value investor. Yeah, I, and then it doesn't just have to be a value investor. I think that you can pick stocks that generally outperform. Sure, that. stock picking in general. Then 
Yeah, it does mean that. It could also mean that it's a good time to invest in all sorts of other weird assets because their their returns versus stocks are not so bad. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like I'm not someone who's in favor of gold generally as a thing or that I advocate Timberland or that I advocate any of those things. Or, But, you know, there's generally generally those can't offer as attractive returns as stocks but if you think stocks are really overpriced then they start to become competitive with them so how do you stay sane then that's the topic of those videos yeah how do the individual stay sane i'm getting tons of dms all the time from people emails you don't take it as as a comment on your decision making i mean that's the big thing is that like why should you so so you think about your i think the biggest the biggest concern that people have or something when i talk to people is that they um agreed in envy really that they felt there was a time that they could have made money some people did and so they made a mistake and i'll just say there is no way that any of us know if Mm -hmm. it was or wasn't a good buying opportunity a few months ago um there's no way it's too soon. Now, that doesn't mean that it wasn't. It could absolutely have been. But the issues of why, what would or wouldn't make it a good um, time to buy, unless you're a speculator, have not been resolved yet. Mm-hmm. We, we haven't seen quarterly reports from a lot of the companies that you're talking about then, you know? And that's one period of time. So we haven't seen it play out long enough from that to know. You usually can't tell within three months of something uh, being a buy, an opportunity, a good time to sell or something, whether that was. You can know from a speculative thing, did you get in before others got back in? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. We can prove that definitively. Sure. Yet you yeah. got in at the moment before everyone else got in. But it's not our approach and it's not most people's approach listening to this podcast i think to try to do what the crowd is going to do but do it faster now if that's your goal then that was the perfect opportunity of a lifetime right and then the question is now you have to decide when is the time to get out before the crowd gets out and you know try to do the same thing again but that's not what we do but you certainly can do that Mm -hmm. and um or you can attempt to do that and so those people are absolutely right on that but all that's happened is that some people bought stocks for several months Right, you don't know from the results of the companies whether you've made a good decision or not yet. Mm-hmm. Sure, yeah. I mean it's not reflected in the. It's not even on the financials yet. Right, but you absolutely know that the like the price has moved in a way that would have benefited you and stuff. If you're trying to do that, then absolutely that was the right decision or not. But you yeah. have to be sane about what you're trying to do. We don't try to do what other people are going to do, but faster. Mm-hmm. Um, but that is what a speculator tries to do. When we mean that they speculate about what other people are going to do. So Keynes and Beauty Contest. When we say speculator in the sense of I'm going to figure out what other people are going to do and then I'm going to do it first, both buy before they start buying and then sell before they start selling. Uh But that's not what we do. But if that is what you do, then you do need to be obsessed about the sorts of things that have happened over these last few months. But if not, then you just need to look at the business results. Uh Uh-huh. What about, um, so, I mean, judging yourself then. So you really think it comes down to um, I hope for everybody, if you could hear somebody snoring in the background, that's our, the, the chief comfort officer. I don't know if they'll be able to hear it through the podcast, but George, the, mm-hmm. the bulldog that everyone sees on Twitter is snoring like six feet away from us. Social distancing, six feet. Yes. Um, but really, so it comes down to just, I guess, keeping the big picture in mind that if you're an investor, there's a difference between being an investor and being a speculator. And it's too soon to judge if that was the right decision. Because a lot of people, I think they associate it being a right decision because the market has gone up. It's bounced back. Right. You just have to think of what would you have, what are you trying to accomplish? I a hundred percent agree that that's the right, you should judge yourself that way. If your goal is to get in and out of stocks in three months. Sure. If that's your goal, then absolutely you needed to do that. Then that's Uh the kind of thing to grade yourself on. We generally are talking three years. 
So, you know, check back in three years of whether it was the right or wrong thing for us to do because we can't evaluate things over that short period of time. Or you can evaluate them on business results. And we have bought stuff too, to be fair. That we bought stuff. Yes. Yeah. Um, that is true. Uh, it, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and we would buy, th- I, w- I would be happy to, I'm happy to go 100% long stocks at a moment when I'm very pessimistic about the market because we want to go 100% long the market. So it doesn't matter. As long as I can find what I want to buy, yeah. then I'll do it in any sort of market. Mm-hmm. What about the Schiller PE? It's very high. I mean, so is the Tobin Q, so is any of those things. That's, it, the, it's a very expensive market. But a lot of people have said maybe the market is just going to forget just sort of like sweep 2020 yeah. under the rug, sure. just count it and, you know, kind of go from there. But it, even at that, though, prices are so expensive. It's absolutely how possible. Many companies are better off. It's absolutely possible. The one caveat on that is if the market kept going down, would they write those articles? Or are they writing those articles because the market went up? So they're trying to explain what's already happening. You know, it's so funny. So I use um, to check quotes daily, Thinkorswim mm. through TD Ameritrade. And we don't even custody like our firm there. I just have always used Toss. So I just mm. do it to look at prices. And if you look at like the, <laughs> the SPX or like the futures, yeah. I was like, I could never imagine being this person that has to constantly write these articles like on the news feed with you, like oh. on the SPS because it's like the market is up on tensions, um, you know, going away with China. And it's like <laughs> yes. the market pulled back. And it's like the market is pulled back based on t- I'm just like, holy smokes, like yeah. imagine doing you that. You have to you make know? up some reason why it went up yeah. or down. Yeah, it's incredible. I know Ed Thorpe has that in the book, uh, A Man for All Markets, where he talks about how, uh, you know, every that moves to a few percent are normal in every market, and yet every day they write an explanation of why it goes up or down. Yeah, I would, I would hate to have that job. Well, I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with Jeff and myself on the Focus Compounding Podcast. Also, make sure you download all of our podcasts if you want to get access to our backlog starting July 1st. Uh, only of the 20 most recent episodes uh, will be available for free. The other ones will be behind a paywall. It's not going to be a lot of money, uh, but if you want to save all the episodes, you will have until July 1st to do that. And if you're just a regular listener, and you follow along, um, it shouldn't affect you at all. I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in, and we will see you in the next podcast.